0: You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Matthew 1. As I said, um, we, we've been looking at the genealogy of Jesus and, and looking at this anticipation of awaiting a Savior. And, and the genealogy is, is this history, but it's also this reminder of how much waiting took place uh, until you get to Jesus. When you, when you read through the genealogy, uh, after you get over the stumbling over your words or pronouncing some of the different names you know, of the people in the genealogy, you're just reminded that it was generation after generation after generation. Uh, of waiting and waiting for this promised Savior to come. We, we um, couldn't have planned this. Uh, sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit makes a, a pastor look smart. And in this case, this is what happened. We were just preaching through Genesis 3.15. Uh, through Genesis chapter three in our sermon series on Genesis one through eleven, and we got to Genesis three fifteen, in which uh, we uh, most scholars say that uh, it's called the gospel, uh, the proto gospel, the first gospel that was pronounced in Genesis three fifteen, as God promises in, in the midst of judgment uh, that He's going to send a, a child, an offspring of Eve, to crush the head of Satan of the serpent, and to do, uh, and to ultimately um, bring defeat to to sin and to evil. Uh, And and it's this glimmer of a hope that keeps us looking for the child that's to come that's going to fulfill those promises. Um, And and throughout the scriptures, we see this, uh, this thread, if you will, of the promised child that's to come. And is this promised child going to be the one that's going to bring the redemption that God has promised? And and the genealogy of Jesus, it really, in many ways, gives us an overview of God's covenant relationship with his people. Um, We'll post our notes online afterwards so you don't have to uh, jot all of this down, uh, you know, uh, like you won't hear it again. But uh, I wanted to kind of just... uh, paint for you the picture of God's covenant relationship with his people. We see a number of covenants that God makes throughout the scriptures. This is kind of the background uh, that we've been looking at um, over the last two weeks in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Uh, we we have the what's called the Noahic covenant that's in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we'll be looking at that in a few weeks as we pick back up our origin series on Genesis 1 through 11 in the new year. Um, but that covenant is made with all of creation for all of time, speaking of God's Promise not to judge the world again uh, through a flood uh, and we have this promise it's a reminder that God is judge as well as a reminder that God is the one who stays judgment who withholds judgment of his mercy uh, towards us and that's the rainbow that's in the sky uh, that comes out uh, over uh, after after a rain and and though we probably think of the YouTube double rainbow guy now when we think of uh, you know the rainbow when we see it in the sky if you haven't seen that one that's a good uh, that's a good one we had a double rainbow recently. Uh, I, I quoted him. It made me want to cry. It was beautiful. But in all seriousness, it's given to us as a sign um, and a reminder of a God who is merciful as well as a God who is just. But then we, we come into a God forming a people for himself through the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. That's reiterated in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17 and Honestly, in Genesis 22, and then again, and through Jacob in Genesis 28. Um, but especially in Genesis 12, God makes this promise with Abraham that he's going to bless him. He's going to make him a great nation. And through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, and, and the deal with Abraham's co- God's covenant with Abraham is Abraham has no child. Uh, when God makes this covenant with him. He and his wife, Sarah, at the time, are advanced in age, the Scripture says. And God miraculously uh, enables them to have a child uh, with whom they can't believe themselves. All they can do is laugh, so they call him laughter, uh, Isaac. And, uh, and, and God, through uh, Abraham's offspring, establishes a people for himself, his people, Israel. And the, the beautiful thing about God establishing a people for himself is God chose one, per, one people in order to bless all people. Uh, he, he makes a people for himself with Abraham so that he can bring blessing to all nations. And he even tells Abraham that he's going to die and his offspring after him are going to become a great nation. But before they get to that point, they're going to be in Israel uh, as slaves for 400 years. And then God is going to bring them out and deliver them. And when God does that, when he redeems them from bondage in, uh, in Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai and he establishes what's called the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is different in some ways from the Abrahamic Covenant because in the Abrahamic Covenant, God establishes the terms with Abraham and they, cut, they take all these animals and they cut them up and they uh, lay one half on one side, one half on the other side. And, and the idea was the two covenant parties would hold hands and walk through the animals, uh, which would be a little creepy. But uh, they would do that and the indication was if one of us breaks the covenant, may we end up like these animals. Uh, but when it came time for Abraham and, and God to go through the aisle, God put Abraham to sleep, and a firing pot goes down the, the center of the animals by himself as if to say, I will keep this covenant, uh, God says in Genesis chapter 15. Well, in the Mosaic covenant, uh, God lays out for his people not how to, how to be redeemed, not how to be saved, He did that in delivering them from Egypt. He redeemed them by his grace, by his strong arm, he redeemed them. And then he said, now as my people, my redeemed people, here's how you're to live. And the Mosaic covenant is God's commands for Israel to be a showcase people, to show the world what it meant to belong to God. And if they kept it, they would be blessed. And if they disobeyed and they broke it, they would be cursed. And, and you can see how God lays out the blessings and the cursings, especially in Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law after they wander in the desert for 40 years because they didn't believe God to go into the promised land on the first time. God gives it to them a second time, and He reminds them of these blessings and cursings. But there, even in Deuteronomy 30, God says, you know, the thing is, you need new hearts. You need new hearts in order to keep the law. And that that's going to ring in the ears of God's people for uh, for years, as as God uh, later is going to tell them how to get a new heart. So, Mosaic Covenant, Exodus nineteen, and then there's the Davidic Covenant, which is in Second Samuel seven. And Second Samuel seven, uh, after uh, Israel has Saul as a king, and in some ways, God promised to be to rule over and to be king over Israel, but they wanted a king like the nations. And they wanted a king that would uh, be uh, respectable like the other nations around them. So they, they picked the guy who looked the best. Uh, they, they picked the Tom Brady uh, of the day, right? Uh, they, they picked uh, the king that they thought was the man, Saul. And if you're, uh, whether you're a Buccaneers fan or a Patriots fan, we're all, we're all Michigan fans, all right? So we, we, can, we can agree uh, that, that, that that was the best fit. Saul seemed to be the best fit, but the problem was they were thinking according to, to man and not God. In all honesty, though, as I step back, um, this is the spirit-led uh, application illustration where you get yourself in trouble. If you go look at Tom Brady's like, uh, NFL Combine video, He actually is more like David, to be honest. Uh, He doesn't look all that impressive, and he's in the seventh round that he gets drafted. Um, and, and then, you know, he becomes, he becomes the goat, right? Uh, so maybe, maybe I got it backwards. Maybe, maybe the, you know, they, they chose <clears throat> uh, someone else. But the, the real Tom Brady, the real David was out in the shepherd field, uh, out in the sheep field, tending to God's flock. And, and God ultimately is going to establish David uh, as king over Israel. And he's going to say, David is going to be a king but it's ultimately me who's going to build my kingdom through David and through specifically David's offspring. And in 2 Samuel 7, we have this dual promise of there's going to be a king that comes from your your family, Solomon, who's going to be raised up to be king. But then there's this kingdom that's never going to end. There's this king that's always going to reign. And that means there either has to be an unbroken succession of Davidic kings from here on until the end of history, or there has to be one king who comes from the offspring of David who lives forever and who establishes a kingdom that will never end. And so we have this dual promise that even in the Davidic covenant, there's this, yes, near term, this promise to Solomon. And God does indeed bless Solomon. And Solomon builds a temple for God. And the borders of Israel are expanded to their greatest extent. And the the glory of God is seen in Israel in its greatest degree. Um, And yet it's un, un. fulfilled and not fully complete because there's this future orientation for an offspring of David to come. And as you look throughout the prophets, they're all waiting for the anointed one who is the branch of David, the root of Jesse, the one who's coming from the line of David. In Jeremiah 35, it talks about an eternal covenant that God makes with David because it's looking forward to the Davidic king who's to come. And then we come to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel, 36. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is a prophet uh, during exile, during the period of exile for the people of Israel. And he says, the day is coming when God is going to establish a new covenant that, catch this, won't be like the old covenant which is in reference to the Mosaic covenant. But during this new covenant, God is going to put His Spirit in your heart and will write it on your heart so that you will obey his commands. Each person shall know the Lord, it says, and he will forgive your iniquities and you will be his people. And these covenants are what framed how God's people thought about God and what it meant to be in relationship with him. It's what ordered their lives. It's what ordered the worship in the temple. It's what uh, ordered the, uh, the, uh, the hopes and the aspirations of the people of Israel. And this overview of the biblical covenants, as we get to the New Testament, the genealogy of of Jesus in Matthew 1 begins with this blaring statement. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the one to come at the end of exile and to deliver his people from exile. That's, that's what we've been looking at, that Jesus is the promised one. First, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. That they, they are fulfilled in Him. All of, his, all of the blessings that come from being in right relationship with God, we experience through faith in Jesus. And so Jesus, as we see uh, throughout, is uh, the offspring of Abraham who brings salvation to all nations. He's the offspring of David through whom God establishes his kingdom now through his first coming in the hearts of those who believe in him and fully in his second coming. And it will be complete when he returns. And then we see today how Jesus establishes the new covenant through his sacrificial death in our place and for our sins, when he celebrates the Lord's Supper with his disciples before he goes to the cross, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, because it symbolizes my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> we see that the, the forgiveness of sins that comes to us by grace through faith is found in Jesus. The indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is now in us who believe. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's history, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And through faith in him, we experience those blessings as well. And that brings us to Matthew 1, 12 through 17, uh, because we see that it, it begins, it transitions from the time of David and the promise of, uh, of David into this promise or into this period of exile. In this period of exile in Matthew 1, verses 12 through 17 we see it says this, After the deportation or exile to Babylon, Jechoiniah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. And notice the switch that comes here. Who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. See, verses 12 through 16 <clears throat> transition us from the glories of King David and his reign that begin and that, uh, that are pointed to in verse 6. Um, Lots of kings mentioned only David is the king. Um, uh, We see the glory uh, of of King David all the way to the the shameful rebellion of his successors, the the kings that followed him, uh, no less uh, starting with Solomon and then ultimately Rehoboam in which the kingdom is divided, as it says in verse 7. All the way to God's judgment through exile. You see, exile was a it was an act of God's judgment and discipline upon his people. And, and here we are at the low of the people of Israel as they reflect on sitting in exile and in many ways still consider themselves at this time, as Jesus comes, as still being in exile under the thumb of the Romans. And Luke one reminds us how under the thumb of the Romans they were, when Corinius says, Hey, all of you guys gotta to get together and you gotta to go to your hometown so that I can count how many people I got in my kingdom. All of which God is using to fulfill his promise that from Bethlehem, the city of David, will come a savior, as Micah five, chapter two says. <clears throat> So, so we see kind of the low point of Israel here, and in fact, um, if you if you were to look in like Ezra and uh, and a few other places, you'll see the uh, in Nehemiah. You'll see the kind of the history surrounding Zerubbabel, uh, which is a great name for uh, your children. Zerubbabel uh, was uh, was used by God to to go in and reestablish uh, the the reestablish Jerusalem after the exile, the King Sirius uh, of, of Persia sends, um, sends some of the, the Israelites back to Jerusalem and they begin to reestablish uh, Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall as it talks about Nehemiah and then laying the foundation of the temple and, and building the second temple because the first one was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, the, this temple that Solomon built. But what's striking to me about this, other than Zerubbabel and Sheltiel that you can read about in other places, the majority of the names here are names that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. Now, that, that makes sense, because after uh, we, we see Israel come back into the land, just a, a portion of them come back into the land, then we have this period of time of about 400 years in which God's people are, are, are waiting waiting for God to speak, waiting for God to act during what's called the intertestamental period and in, in which during that time you see the hopes and the aspirations of Israel play themselves out. Um, and for a brief time through the uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus, the, uh, the, not Judas, uh, uh, the Maccabeus kind of Maccabean revolt, you see the uh, kind of reestablishment of, of Israelite rule in Jerusalem for a brief period of time. And then that's uh, swept away by the Romans. And, and they're still under the hand of an oppressor waiting for God to fulfill his promises when Jesus comes. That's the setting of Israel at the birth of Jesus. Lots of anticipation, lots of waiting. And, and I, I just wanted to kind of lay out for us um, kind of the struggle with exile, just kind of three points that help us understand uh, this hope of a Redeemer in the birth of Jesus. And we, we won't have time to unpack all of this, just the nature of our service today. Uh, so I'm going to go through these quick, but um, I, I want you to see three things. Some of this flows from our series that we did on the Minor Prophets uh, earlier this year. Where we, we spent one week on each of the 12 Minor Prophets. If, if you haven't studied those books or read through those books and, and you just want to know what it was like for the people of Israel to be waiting uh, for God to come. The, the prophets are just filled with uh, both um, some sad things as, as God's people struggled with sin and their re- rebellion against God, as well as the sorrow uh, of, of living under uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and, um, <clears throat> as well as kind of their longing for God to come back. Uh, but three things I want us to, to see with the struggle with exile. The first is the darkness from disobedience. Darkness from disobedience. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 21, we see that God explains why he's sending his people into exile. 2 Chronicles 36, <clears throat> verses 15 through 21 <clears throat> says that um, <clears throat> the Lord, the God of your fathers, sent persistently. To you by his messengers, to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling places. Speaking of all the prophets that came, warning God's people, hey, repent of your sin, turn back to God. He says, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin or old man or age. He gave them all into his hand. And it says that in verse 20, they were carried away into exile in Babylon. <clears throat> we see that it's because of Israel's sin because of their rejection of God and His Word and, and their persistent rebellion against Him that God brings judgment through exile upon His people. And and this this picture of sin and disobedience gets carried out in Jeremiah chapter twenty three. Jeremiah was the prophet at this time, warning um, Judah to to return and repent. and uh, And he's known as a weeping prophet. He was he was literally begging his own people to to repent and return to the Lord, but they continually harden their heart against God. And it says in Jeremiah twenty three especially speaking of the um, of the, the leaders, the shepherds and the prophets of the day. Um, <clears throat> he says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. The, God says concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then we have this hope in the midst of it that a remnant of my flock from all the countries where I have driven them, I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more or be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, here it is, where, where I'm going to raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. But then it goes on to speaking of the prophets, how... <clears throat> Um, how as they uh, spoke uh, God's word to the people, he said, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and his holy words. He says, both the prophet and priest, verse 11, are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil. Therefore, their ways shall be to them like slippery paths into darkness. Into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment. And then, as we heard so beautifully saying in Isaiah chapter 9, as God speaks to his people as they sit in judgment and exile, the way he describes them in exile, as he says, <clears throat> he says, uh, in, in starting in, in verse 8, uh, in verse 22, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into the darkness. But then in verse 9, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Though they, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And that light is a child who was born to us, a son that is given. And the government will be upon the shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They sit in darkness, and there's, a, there's going to be a Savior who comes. The struggle with exile first is the darkness of disobedience. God's people disobeyed, and God held them to an account. But then we see that the, there's sorrow from living in a sin stained world. Uh, just note this down and go look at it later Habakkuk 1 1 through 4. Habakkuk wrestles with God, why God would allow an evil nation like Babylon to to be the means of judgment against his people Israel. He says, how can this be, God? And in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, he says, God, you're too pure and holy to even look on unrighteousness, and yet you use them to judge us? There was, this, there was this sorrow that came from living in a sin-stained world where, where God's people cried out. They said, how long, O Lord, will you forget us? And will we be uh, a scorn uh, among the nations? Will we be mocked among the nations? Yes, they were in judgment, but they're in judgment under the hands of their oppressors. They often struggled with sorrow as the people of Israel were carried away. The book of Lamentations that speaks about how the people of Israel sat and couldn't even sing the songs Of worship to God because of the sorrow of being carried away into Babylon. That's the nature of exile. It's marked by sorrow. It's marked by the pain and the darkness of disobedience, the sorrow of living in a sin stained world, sometimes because of our own sin and sometimes because of the sin of others. And then finally, we have the longing for home. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 we get this glimpse of the people returning to the land. Um, They return to the land briefly uh, and begin to to rebuild uh, the temple. Uh, And it says in in Ezra chapter 3, as the temple is being rebuilt in verse 10, that the builders laid the foundation of the temple. And the priest and their vestments came forward. There was all this pomp and circumstance, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel, they said. And all the people, it says, when they laid the foundation of the temple, shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation had been laid. But many priests and Levites and the heads of the Father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though, they, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the joyful shout from the sounds of the people weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and that sound was heard far away. They wept because the glory of the second temple was nothing in comparison to the glory of the first temple. They wept because though they had come home, they still didn't feel like they were home. The, the people of Israel were scattered because of judgment and exile. And the promise and the hope that they had is that God was going to bring them back. And that they were longing to be home. And even as they got home, there was this sense of, of it being incomplete and not yet fulfilled. <clears throat> and, and this is the struggle of Israel. And I can't help but think as we come to Christmas ourselves, how much we find ourselves struggling with the same things. I don't know if over this past year you've, you've wrestled with some sin in your life. Maybe some, some temptation to sin that you've perhaps in community fought and said no to and turned from. Perhaps struggled with and maybe struggling with still. Maybe, maybe there's relational conflict. Maybe, maybe there's, there's some area of your life that uh, you just kind of glossed over because it's too difficult to deal with. How often we struggle with the darkness of sin. And in fact, that because of our sins, sometimes we want to keep it in the dark rather than bringing it into the light. How many of you this year have struggled to understand what God is doing in your life? Questions about the future and understanding what's next. Struggled to, to make sense of why things are happening the way that they are. Why are we still in the midst of a pandemic? Why, why aren't things working out at work the way that I want? Why are my relationships still struggling? Why is this relationship that I wish was, was just easy and was made right, why is it still so broken? You just struggle with the sorrow of living in a sin-stained world, sometimes because of our sin, sometimes because of the sin of others. And then, like Israel, longing for home. Do you ever feel weary? Just kind of tired? Maybe, maybe unsure of where home even is. I remember as I got older and further away from college, I always longed to go home for Christmas, and yet when I got there, as awesome as it was, it was different. The people that used to be there were gone or had grown up or uh, things changed, new things came, new people came. You know, if you ever had that feeling of like going back and visiting like your high school, uh, maybe some of you are like, I would never want to do that. But you go in, maybe like the year after, you know, your first year of college, you go in and like, hey, it's good to see you, Hey, hey Mr. Mr. Jones, good to see you, you know. And then like a few years go by, you go back and you're like, this is like middle school again. Like, I'm super awkward. What is happening? You know, or, or you, you just have this sense of you want to go home, but then you get there and it's not what you thought. How many times do we live that in our life? Like, I just want to get to Christmas. I just want to get to the holidays and things are going to be great. I just want to get beyond the semester. And when I get beyond that last exam, are you hearing me? When I get beyond that last exam, it's going to be all better. And then it's just what it was, like it was before. When, I just, when we just get over this, when this happens at work and this is going to change, then it's all going to, we're always looking ahead, longing for something. And so often we're, felt we're left incomplete, wanting more. That brings us to the hope of a redeemer. In Matthew 1.16, we saw this statement, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called to Christ. We see in this statement in verse 16 that a child has come. Jesus was born, who was the son of Abraham to bring blessing to all nations, who was the son of David to establish God's kingdom, his forever kingdom, and who came to redeem us from exile. He says that he has no earthly father. Though Joseph uh, is born of Jacob, Joseph isn't the father of Jesus. Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He's not like every other child. He has no earthly father. and in, in fact, as the Scriptures unfold it, he is fully God, and he is fully man. And in the fullness of time, God came to dwell among us. In Galatians chapter 4, it says... And then he fulfills God's promises. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Took me a while to figure that out, so it's okay if you haven't. Christ is His title. He's Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the promised one. The one spoken of in the prophets. Jesus is the Christ, Matthew is saying. And the Scriptures are declaring... And this hope of, rede- of a redeemer that's that's comes to fruition in the birth of Jesus reminds us that Christmas really is good news. It's it's about the gospel, which means good news. It's a it's it's not as as I heard Tim Keller say. It's not merely advice about living a better life. It's good news about finding new life. It's good news that Jesus has come. It's not good advice to fix a few broken areas of our life, to have some better relationships over here, to set more achievable goals, and then uh, you'll go about pursuing those to become a better you. All of those may have good intentions and maybe even good outcomes at times, but that's not what Christmas is about. That's not what the gospel is about. It's about good news that Jesus has come who was born miraculously of a virgin, who was promised according to the scriptures, who on, uh, on the, the coming of, of his, at the coming of his birth, we, we understand him first and foremost in the shadow of the cross because he was born to die in our place and for our sins and on the third day rise. The glory of God first came in a manger and and then we saw it up on a cross on Golgotha and then we saw it laid in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and, and then he rose and he's coming again. This is the good news about Jesus who takes us out of captivity to our sin, who meets us where we are overwhelmed by sorrow and suffering and who leads us home. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas tells us that there's a light that leads us out of the darkness. Christmas tells us that in our sorrow and our suffering, there is a God who is with us. His name is Emmanuel. His name is Jesus. Christmas tells us that there is forgiveness of sin. That the darkness doesn't have to overwhelm us. That there is hope in our sorrow. Christmas tells us that there's a way home. And the way home isn't a lifestyle. The way home is a person, and his name is Jesus. And it's in him that the gloomy clouds of night are dispersed. It's in him that death, dark shadows are put to flight. It's in him that sin and sorrow will no more grow. You following me? It's in him that we're freed from the sins and fears that grip us. It's in him that the oppression surrounding us shall cease is what we sing at Christmas. It's in him that the weary world rejoices. It's in him that there is a thrill of hope that fills our hearts. It's in him that we sing at Advent that there's a path to our heavenly home that's now open wide. At Advent, we we await a Savior who came. And His name is Jesus, and He's coming again. And so here in the midst, as we anticipate celebrating Christmas in these coming weeks ahead of us, it's not, it's not just about slowing down and enjoying family or friends or some good food or a good fire or getting ready to give some presents or receive some presents. It's about turning our eyes to Him, preparing room in our hearts. We sing these songs, but have they gripped your hearts? Have you bowed your knee to Him? Have you made room in your heart for Him? Have you centered your life around Him? If the God of the universe laid in a manger in order that He might come to ultimately save us and rescue us from our sin, how how can we not in our lives center our whole world around Him and make our life about Him? And so I think the challenge for us today, the opportunity for us today is to, Maybe if you're a believer, to open your heart up a little wider to him this Christmas. Maybe, maybe there's a need to dig a little deeper and address some things that you've left unchecked. Maybe, maybe there's some need to, to just draw close to God and, and weep because you're weary and because you're, you're tired and because you've been hurt and you need to draw near to the one who is near the brokenhearted. Maybe you just need to be honest about the disappointments and the expectations that haven't been fulfilled in your life and know that we're always ultimately restless until we find our rest in him. There's much for us to celebrate and to adore about Jesus, but it's a shame if we sing the songs, if we know the truth, and yet we don't center our life around him. That's the invitation this Christmas. The genealogy of Jesus gives us the history of Israel. It gives us a summary of the Bible, of the, uh, the, the history of God's covenant with his people. But it's ultimately about the person that comes at the end Jesus. Is our life about him? And perhaps you're even thinking to yourself, what would it mean for my life to be about him? I don't even know. His invitation to you today is to come to me, and I'll forgive you of your sins, and I'll make you new. Will you come? Or you believe. Let's pray.